You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Happy Wednesday to you. It's time for Herd Mentality, the podcast episode each week where you take control of the discussion by sending in your questions, takes, whatever you have regarding the Bills, and I respond to them here on the podcast. So that's exactly what we're going to do. We'll start with Jeffrey, who says, It's odd to me that the RAS and combine slash athletic testing is so important at draft time and critical to draft position, mentions AJ, Groot, and Davis are Bills because of some poor test results but that is the last we ever hear of it. Do teams test their players this way throughout their careers? When free agents visit a team for a workout, do they do the same test? We never hear stories about players improving their scores after they become pros. For example, I would love to know if Singletary's off-season work as per Tyler Dunn's story or AJ Epines's weight loss have or would have affected their scores. I would think teams would want to monitor the progress of their players in some tangible way beyond reports, from the private or team strength and conditioning trainers? It's a good question, Jeffrey. I don't think they're ever tested again. I think you run that 40, you do your three-cone, your your vertical jump, your broad jump, all the tests at the combine or your pro day, and that stays on your card forever. In fact, it wasn't too long ago that I was talking to Dre Harris about this, and Dre Harris is a former NFL scout. He was in the league for seven years and uh, he works with us full-time at thedraftnetwork.com. We were talking about those 40 times, and he literally said, that's the number that's on their card forever. And the truth is, like you pointed out, things do change. A perfect example is A.J. Epinesa, who underwent a body transformation. Surely his testing now is different than it was at the NFL Combine. And he's just one example of many. So, no, I don't think those tests are ever replicated again. However, during those workouts, I'm sure teams do put the the athletes through some type of drill or workout that does give them clues about what type of mobility and speed and explosiveness they have. Um, So while I don't think they ever time those things again, you know, it's still relevant and still part of their evaluation when guys come in for visits. But uh, yeah, I often think about that. I often think about players that are older and You know, obviously I'm dialed into this athletic testing so much and I ask myself a lot, well, you know, look, player X, he ran a 4-3 in 2013. What is he running now? Is is, uh, Richard Sherman, if he ran 4-6 or whatever, however many years ago, what's he running now? You know, I definitely think about that all the time, but I don't think players ever really um, go through those drills again and test and uh, have their scores updated. Joe B says, do you think we will add Kawan short when it gets closer to training camp? Carolina North needs some more guys. Obviously, Joe B referring to Kawan short, the former defensive tackle from the Carolina Panthers, who had a good career under Sean McDermott and Eric Washington, but uh, is a free agent right now. He's been injured a lot over the last couple of seasons and you know, kind of spoiled his run there in Carolina because for a while he was one of the best pass rushing three techniques in the game. And then the last couple of years, he just couldn't stay healthy, and he signed a monster contract. And so the last couple of years of that deal have not been uh, what Carolina envisioned when they gave him all that money. I would be in favor of it. 
because I think he comes in at this point at a very low cost, prove it type situation. And I've been telling you that I'm a little bit concerned about the Bills' defensive tackle depth, you know, even more so than defensive end entering the draft. So I think he'd be a wonderful addition to the defensive tackle room. Uh, have him compete with Vernon Butler and Harrison Phillips and see if you can get a little bit of an upgrade there. Obviously, the concern is that, you know, whether or not he can stay healthy because he has not for the last two seasons and he's an older player. So that's something I keep in mind. But if you get Kwan Short to be 80% of what he was at his peak, that's a friggin' good football player. Alexander says, do you think having a weak spot at CB2 is some sort of Sun Tzu mind game on behalf of the Bills where other teams have an obvious weakness that they will target? This would enable the Bills to predict where the targets will go in each protection and can then control the opposing offense's point of attack. That's interesting. (laughs) I don't think I can say that I totally agree with it, but it's uh, certainly an interesting point to bring up given the Bills and and Sean McDermott's history, not just with the Bills, dating back to Carolina as well, where it was some really good player like a Tredavious White or a peak Josh Norman or a Chris Gamble, and then some other guy to get you by at CB2. So it's long been McDermott's history with CB2, and so um, you would think he'd want to have another talented option opposite of that really good CB1, but... Year after year after year after year after year, he just doesn't do it. So whether it's a reliance on scheme and believing that you have a scheme that doesn't require you to invest heavily in CB2 or you have some type of thought process where you know you kind of pay that one guy and trust them to take away the other team's number one receiver and then you can kind of funnel your coverage and help to other areas of the field and it dictates your spacing a little bit and you like that, I'm not sure. But there is definitely intentionality behind McDermott and his long-standing tradition of not investing heavily in a second cornerback. Dave says, before he got hurt, Harrison Phillips was playing excellent football. My question is, if he's able to regain that form, do you see him as more of a three-tech or a one-tech. Seems like he was better at three technique. So I think it's fair to say that in 2019, in that two-and-a-half-game stretch to start the season, Harrison Phillips played really good football. I was not overly enamored with him, number one, as a prospect coming out of Stanford, or in 2018 as a rookie for the Bills. So he played in 2019, two-and-a-half games, looked really good, and then in 2020, I thought he was pretty below average for most of the year, and then kind of later in the season, he started to play better. So the concern that I have here in my life of watching Harrison Phillips, which dates back to his time at Stanford, I have a sample size that is mostly below average play. I recognize he played well at the end of 2020, including the playoffs. I recognize that in 2019, in that two-and-a-half game stretch, he was pretty good. But the sample size, the larger sample size, is below average to me. So I don't, I'm not really expecting a whole lot out of Harrison Phillips. I hope that he can be a quality reserve and the high-level stuff that we see winds up being more consistent, but I'm not counting on that. And I will say this to your, answer your specific question about him being a one-tech or a three-tech. I think he's a one-technique all day long. I know that he's not necessarily a bigger-bodied guy. Normally, you think one-tech, you think you know, larger than what Harrison Phillips is, but he's definitely not a athletic penetration style guy at the three technique. 
that's going to be able to play on the other side of the line of scrimmage. His best chance is to be able to anchor and hold at the point of attack. And um, he doesn't give you that disruptive type ability. So he's definitely a one technique. And um, hopefully he can be reasonable in 20, 25% of the snaps this year. Hey, Bills fans, listen up. Nugenics, the number one selling free testosterone booster at GNC, is offering a complimentary bottle to all football fans in America. To get your complimentary bottle of Nugenics, text DRAFT to 231231. This unique man-boosting formula is powered by Testafin, which helps boost free testosterone and total testosterone levels and increase energy and lean muscle mass. Plus, text NOW, and they'll include a bottle of Nugenics Thermo, their most powerful fat incinerator ever with key ingredients to help you get back in shape absolutely free. Text DRAFT to 231231. That's DRAFT to 231231. Message and data rates may apply. Next one today comes from Stan, who says, I had a question about CB2. Why is it that Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott are so focused on traits when it comes to most draft picks? However, this ideology seems to disappear when looking at cornerbacks. They seem to be content just rolling with mediocre traits at this position. And as you and Bruce Nolan have talked about, CB is a premium position that is one of the more expensive to pay for higher level talents. How do you make sense of this? Is this the hubris of Sean McDermott? that he thinks he can turn any player into a serviceable cornerback. Help me understand this. Why don't they value traits at the premium position of cornerback, which is getting more and more important in today's NFL? Stan, I have a lot of the same confusion that you do. However, I will say that Sean McDermott has a long history of coaching very good pass defenses. And so as much as I want to be critical of this and as much as I think it deserves criticism – because I think his past defenses could be even better, the guy gets it done. He somehow gets it done with some guy at CB2. And I think what maybe plays into this a little bit more, and we need to start being more mindful of it and acknowledging it, is they value tackling at cornerback. Brandon Bean reiterated that in his press conferences following the draft. Tackling is very important to them at the cornerback position. And sometimes it's difficult to find a twitchy, speedy, fluid guy that's sticky in coverage and really excels at mirroring guys down the field that are also willing to come downhill and tackle, right? It's hard to find those combination type guys. So I think that somewhat plays into it when you talk about some of the limited athleticism that is typically found in a McDermott CB2 because they want that guy to be able to tackle. So, I don't know. It's it's confusing to me as well, but I think Sean McDermott can point to his resume in terms of coaching good secondaries and very good pass defenses throughout the course of his career and say, hey, it's working. <laughs> you know, and, and that makes it hard to argue with. The next one comes from DK, who says, the Bills, again, waited much longer than the rest of us believed necessary to address the cornerback position. What do you believe is the difference between their view of the position versus the view of most fans slash analysts? A, confidence in the current roster, Wallace, Johnson, Jackson, and Lewis. B, confidence and ability of coaching staff to coach up players. C, confidence in their own scouting to find quality talent later than most. D, they simply followed their draft board. Or E, they don't value CB2 nearly as much as fans and analysts. DK, you answered your question. I mean, all of those options that you gave, 
they play into it. I think each one of those reasons that you gave me, options that you gave me to go with in terms of answering this question, I think each one of those items plays a piece into this. And so um, it's an all-of-the-above type thing, but I think it's probably prudent of us to start conditioning ourselves to understand that they're probably not going to make a substantial investment in the guy opposite of Trey White. Unless it winds up biting him in the butt this year, right? If it's like undeniable that they failed this team, this season was sunk and didn't reach expectations because they didn't find that guy opposite of Trey White. Unless that happens, I believe this is just going to be the way things are going to be. Next one comes from Ryan who says, being in the first year post-opt-outs, how does your scouting plan change for the summer? I'm sure you looked at the 2019 tape for the teams that didn't play last summer. So does that free up some of your time not going back and rewatching the same film? Or will you be adding other projects or work to fill in any gaps? It's a good question, Ryan. Um, in fact, earlier this week, I sat down and I mapped out my summer scouting plan. So as I've shared a few times on the podcast, my region for the Draft Network is the ACC, the AAC, South Carolina, Tennessee, and LSU. And I went through and identified the players that I want to get to this summer and um, do preliminary write-ups for thedraftnetwork.com. You know, those slide-outs that you read in the mock draft machine, we've got to populate them with our strengths and weaknesses for those players. And so that takes a summer's worth of watching film and taking notes and publishing to get that done. So I don't think it really changes anything because all of my guys, all of my regions, they all played last year. Now, for guys like Dre Harris in the Pac-12 and, you know, even Kyle, Kyle Krabs, who um, he has the Big Ten and some of those teams only played a handful of games, you know, I think it might look differently for them, but my conferences pretty much played a full season. And so I've got a good amount of uh, tape to look back at and point to and flesh out these, uh, these summer reports. Now, there's some guys that I wrote up last summer that didn't declare, and so it's just going to be a matter of watching a few games and seeing how my notes compare to what I already wrote, so that'll be nice. But for the most part, I'm going in with a fresh uh, set of eyes on you know, 120 or so players that I mapped out for my region that I want to get to uh, before the season. Next one today comes from Chris. Also, Edgar had a very similar submission regarding a 3-4 defense for the Bills. Chris says, how comfortable would you be with a 3-4 front? Do the Bills have the personnel to be successful in it? Bigger question is, what is the defensive fastball? I can see Leslie Frazier moving to an opponent-specific base scheme, 4-3-3-4 nickel. I think this draft sets the conditions for a championship-caliber 3-4 front. On this, I'm curious to the percentage of base defense for Super Bowl champions. Well, I don't have that data in front of me, but uh, it's interesting at least uh, to consider this idea. Um, and we've had a couple people email this week about the Bills and the possibility of going to a 3-4 base defense. I, I would say that I don't like that idea at all. Uh, McDermott and Frazier have made careers out of running a 4-3 defense and um, not having an odd front look. So not only do I think it's a extremely odd transition at this point based on these guys having high-level positions in football based on the systems that they have run. I think that it's a bit of a stretch to say that the Bills have the personnel to run a 3-4 base. Who's the nose tackle? 
They don't have a true 3-4 nose. I guess we're assuming Epinesa and Rousseau are five techs in a 3-4. I mean, that's extremely boring. You're going to ask them to just hold in two-gap and you know try to anchor and set the edge and just keep the second level clean. I mean, those are attack-style players. Those guys are long and 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 quick. You know, I want those guys attacking. I don't want them sitting there holding guys at the point. The Bills don't have anything on their roster that resembles a 3-4 outside linebacker. Tremaine Edmonds is not a 3-4 outside linebacker. That would be a gross misuse of his skill set. And Jerry Hughes has thrived in a 4-3. I mean, I guess he somewhat has that type of skill set to be a 3-4 outside linebacker, but this guy's 30-something years old and has been a 4-3 defensive end. So I don't really I don't really see this idea as one that I believe is viable. I'll admit that I'm biased towards a 4-3 front because I like the penetration style, attacking style of play with my defensive linemen. I don't want them just sitting there anchoring and holding at the point. That's boring to me. Um, but I do recognize that there's good defenses out there that run 3-4 base, right? Like Tampa Bay, Baltimore, Pittsburgh. Those teams are all base 3-4 defenses, and they're all really, really good. But um, I'm not a big fan of the idea. I don't think you make that type of switch. That's exactly what happened when the Bills went from Jim Schwartz in a 4-3 defense and then hired Rex Ryan and tried to transition to a 3-4 with similar personnel. It just doesn't. It doesn't work. It's a you're setting the defense back, and I still don't think they have the personnel needed to run it. The next one comes from Smooth, who says, "I just listened to Herd Mentality 112, and I had a take, and I want your opinion on. I feel that Boogie and Rousseau's floor is good to elite edge setters, and this skill set complements a three tech with elite penetration skills perfectly. For this defense to become elite." Ed Oliver must take a step forward in year three, and these picks indicate that Bean and McDermott are all in on Oliver turning into Kawan Short. Other factors such as CB2, one-tech depth, etc. are not critical for this defense getting back into the top five. Note that Short only had five sacks and 11 tackles for loss in his first two seasons, then exploded for 11 sacks and 16 tackles for loss in year three. Yes, I do think Ed Oliver becoming a dynamic playmaking three technique is critical for this defense. And I do think guys like Epinesa, Boogie Basham, Groot, all those guys help at Oliver because they are compression style players with heavy hands and long arms. They will enable at Oliver to have more favorable looks to shoot gaps and make plays in the backfield. And I do think for Sean McDermott's defense, there are positions that matter a lot that aren't necessarily consistent with other 4-3 teams. 3-tech is critical for him. Mike Linebacker and weak side linebacker are critical for him. Safety is really, really important. Where other teams might have a heavier emphasis on having two good corners and two good you know, elite outside edge rushers. For McDermott, it's very much in the middle. 3-tech, linebacker, safety. Those are premium positions for Sean McDermott. And I do think that... Um, that's smooth. You have a really good point here about Ed Oliver and uh, the stage really being set for him to explode in year three. Not all that unlike what happened to Kawan Short in Carolina. Jay says, what do you mean when you say a lineman has heavy hands? How are heavy hands an advantage? Jay, thank you so much for asking this question. And I encourage anyone, whoever has a question like this, if I'm using football jargon and it doesn't click with you, please always ask because sometimes I can be too assuming 
and it's likely that someone else has the same level of confusion that you do. Plus, whenever I break down football things like this, I get a lot of positive feedback. So I always appreciate these opportunities. So what do I mean when I say a lineman has heavy hands? What I mean is that they have powerful punch. When they get their hands on their opponent, they're able to control reps. They have firm grip strength. They get their hands fit, and they win the rep because of it. They're able to control reps with their hands. If you watch line play in the NFL, you watch Aaron Donald, you watch good dynamic defensive linemen and offensive linemen, they win reps because they get their hands placed and control with their hands and play with extension. Um, You can tell when a guy has heavy hands, when they strike, how does that opponent respond? Does their head jerk back? Do their shoulder pads pop a little bit? Is there a jolt? You can tell when it happens. So watch that line play in half speed and see what the impact is when the lineman gets their hand fit and strikes and lands their punch. What is the result of that? And can they control from that? When they have their hands set, do they get swiped? Do they get you know, their hands moved off of them? What's their grip strength like? So whenever I say heavy hands, I'm talking about either an offensive lineman or a defensive lineman being able to win with the strength in their hand that allows them to take control of reps and sustain that control because they have powerful, violent, heavy hands. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball season is in full swing, and you can track all the action at Bet Online. Get all the latest news, odds, and info for all your sporting needs, including MLB, NBA, NHL, and the UFC. Before the next pitch, head over to Bet Online on your laptop or mobile device and check out all the great sporting news, sign up bonuses, and contest information. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get in the game. So head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit when you use our promo code locked on. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Need to tell you guys about Built Bar. It's the best tasting protein bar on the planet. They have so many amazing flavors and they're all delicious. They're covered in 100% chocolate. They're soft and easy to chew. It's like eating a candy bar, but it's good for you. Built Bar is great for anyone who is health conscious. Whether you want to lose weight, maintain weight, or just indulge in a delicious treat, you have to try Built Bars. They're low calorie, low sugar, high protein, high fiber, and great for anyone who is on the keto diet. I've got a deal for you. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your next order. Again, use promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. Next one today comes from Martin who says, For the past two NFL drafts, I have overwhelming feelings of disappointment. This past draft, I could not believe that we passed on guys like Elijah Moore, Owusu Koromoa, Tevin Jenkins, or even Landon Dickerson at pick 30. Imagine getting Elijah Moore at pick 30 and then trading up for Aziz Ojolari, who was selected 11 spots before our pick at 61, or Owusu Koromoa, who was selected just nine picks prior to our selection. Even if trading up wasn't in Bean's interest, I don't understand how you pass on Moore or Owusu Koromoa. I also feel like the Bills dropped the ball by not drafting some prospects that you have gone in-depth about, like Creed Humphrey, Ifeatumela Fanwu, Derek Forrest, and James Wiggins. The Bills selected guys like Rousseau rather than Elijah Moore or Owusu Koromoa, and last year with A.J. Epinesa instead of Jeremy Chin, Christian Fulton, 
or J.K. Dobbins? Is it just me, or are the Bills seriously missing on better talent opportunities? I had a thought that maybe this past draft, with having the number one most expensive defensive line of the NFL, we approached the first two picks on guys who need time to process. Bean can safely cut guys like Trent Murphy and Mario Addison and have Rousseau and Basham to be their replacements. Then when Rousseau and Basham reach their second contract, the Bills won't have to pay top dollars for their contracts because these specific players take longer to develop. What are your thoughts? I don't mean to sound like such a downer. This past year was amazing to see the Bills reach the AFC Championship game and cannot wait to see what's in store for the future. I just want your perspective on the Bills passing up on available talent that seems considerably better than the guys they picked. I appreciate the question here, Martin. If you recall, the first thing that I said when we really dug into our draft discussion, I said, we can't marry ourselves to certain ideas or certain possibilities or certain players because the Bills are picking at 30 and it's just not clear what's going to be there and what opportunities they'll have. Now, I recognize that you mentioned opportunities that they did have and Elijah Moore, and Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. And we certainly spent a lot of time talking about different prospects on this podcast that are not Buffalo Bills right now. But that doesn't mean I had all the answers. It doesn't mean that the Bills had all the answers. That's just what they felt comfortable doing. I think we can all recognize that Brandon Beam has been very meticulous about his approach to roster construction. And while I don't think he's hit every draft pick out of the park, he's done pretty well. And he's especially done well in free agency. And this Bills team is thriving under his leadership. So while it didn't look like I would have done it or what we talked about prior to the draft, it doesn't mean that they got it wrong. I think you have to go back and recognize that they got better at two critical areas of football rushing the passer, and pass blocking. And the Super Bowl last year, we've talked about this, the Super Bowl last year was won by Tampa Bay due in large to their ability to get after Patrick Mahomes. And a big part of the reason why Patrick Mahomes was so under so much pressure in the Super Bowl was not just because Tampa Bay has really good pass rushers. It's because their offensive line was depleted. Both their starting offensive tackles, Eric Fisher and Mitchell Schwartz, were injured. Baltimore lost Ronnie Stanley. The Indianapolis Colts lost Anthony Costanzo. The Green Bay Packers lost David Bakhtiari. I mean, across the NFL, on teams that were contenders, even the Tennessee Titans with Taylor Luan, teams that were contenders across the NFL last year had tons of injuries at offensive tackle. So I think Brandon Bean said, you know what? I don't want this to happen to me. I want to make sure I have plenty of depth at offensive tackle, and I want to make sure I have an abundance of pass rushers. So while the Bills didn't get better in the ways maybe we thought they could or should, they did get better. They added very meaningful pieces to the football team. And then I think you look at the day three picks in Marquez Stevenson and DeMar Hamlin, even Rashad Wild Goose. And you could see how these guys can help and fit into the puzzle. I mean, we've talked about this now literally every podcast since the draft. 
So I don't want to rehash everything we've talked about for the last week or two. But just because the Bills didn't get better how we thought they should or follow the same ideas that we had, it doesn't mean that it wasn't significant. And it doesn't mean that Brandon Bean didn't do a good job of helping this team win right now and in the future. So I think we just have to be mindful now that we're fans of a team that's picking later in the draft, that the possibilities are greater because there's so much that you can't really forecast in front of you. And we have to keep an open mind. And until Brandon Bean shows that he can't engineer rosters that are capable of deep playoff runs, then I think we give him the benefit of the doubt. Peter says, you talk about special teams a lot, about players not playing it. How long should it take to develop a player to play special teams to a decent level? Thanks, love the podcast. You're damn right we talk about special teams a lot, and uh, that's always going to be a big part of, of our conversation here on this podcast. And yes, we do mention players that don't play special teams because if you don't play special teams and you're not a starter, like a really, really good starter, that's going to be a problem for you. I mean, whether you like it or not, and I know a lot of people don't like it. They don't like talking about special teams and players that help on special teams and rostering guys that only help on special teams. It's a big part of the NFL and roster construction. So accept it because it's reality. And um, here's the thing. Like, you know, we talk about DeMar Hamlin, and I really like him as a safety and as a depth player for the Bills and maybe even an eventual starter. But we have to have some level of caution because the guy literally didn't play special teams at Pittsburgh. And so like anything that you do in life, especially in sports, reps, time on task, familiarity, comfort, all of that stuff plays into it. And right now, a guy like DeMar Hamlin doesn't have that. Think about TJ Yeldon. Remember, RB3 for the Bills, never played special teams at Bama, never played special teams at Jacksonville. They tried him on special teams, and guess what? He couldn't do it. So I do think that there is something to say for having that pedigree and that familiarity and that time on task to be able to apply that to the NFL. And anytime that a guy hasn't played special teams, I don't just assume they can do it. It's just like, you know, if a guy played right tackle for his entire college career and has 45 starts at right tackle, I'm not going to assume they could play left tackle. I'm not going to assume they could play guard. I'm not going to assume that a guard could play center if they've never snapped because they're, it's introducing a new layer of what you have to execute. And some guys just can't do it. And so your, your specific question is how long should it take to develop a player to play on special teams to a decent level? I think it's obviously different for every single player, but if a guy is a four-year player in college and wasn't like a superstar player and they didn't play special teams, you got to ask yourself a question like, why didn't they? Or if they've been in the NFL in a while and haven't contributed on special teams and you think that's going to be critical for them making the roster, you have to ask yourself why, and I don't think you can assume that they can. So I like guys that have that proven special teams background because whether it's at the college level or the obviously the NFL level, that comfort and time on task is going to help them. And if they can help on special teams, they can help the football team. The next one today comes from Eric who says, do you believe that the team is better after choosing two defensive ends with their first two picks? Who are the odd men out with nine defensive ends on the roster? And do you think they could move Russo or Basham inside to massage the numbers? I can't help but feel they are worse or didn't help themselves this season with two defensive ends this high. They guaranteed two roster spots to a deep group, and it seems that Johnson or Addison are most likely cut candidates. 
The loss on special teams and veteran guidance to the two rookies seems to be greater than what will be gained by placing either of them on the field this year. I'm all for adding to the room, but would they have been better this upcoming season going in another direction in round two? Say what you want about picking the best player, but if a quarterback would have fallen, they would have passed on him because the team is set at quarterback. I think we've talked a lot about this throughout the the course of this week and even just a few minutes ago on this podcast, so I don't want to go too in-depth here. But adding Rousseau and Basham made the Bills a better team rushing the passer, and that is significant. After quarterback play, being able to rush the passer and make them uncomfortable is the second most important thing about fielding a good football team. It also resets the defensive end money. Everybody last year complained about not having enough sacks and A.J. Klein leading the team in sacks and not being able to get after Patrick Mahomes. Well, it wasn't because they didn't have a bunch of money set and spent at the position. So now you you get an opportunity here to get younger because the Bills aren't going to be able to go out there and sign Chase Young or Miles Garrett or Nick Bosa or Joey Bosa or Khalil Mack in free agency. Those guys don't hit the, the, the open market. So then you're left having to give too much money to guys like Carl Lawson or Romeo Arquara or Trey Hendrickson, average pass rushers, you have to pay them above market deals just to get them, and you're paying for their past sack production. And you're picking late in the draft, and it's not always easy to get impact pass rushers later in the draft. The good ones, the Boses, the Garretts, the Max, they go high. They go in the top five. So the Bills took some swings here to get an impact pass rusher. And if they hit on Rousseau and Basham, Basham winds up being a meaningful rotational piece, that will be significant. They are going to have less money in Rousseau, Basham, and Epinesa than what they're paying this year for Jerry Hughes. That's significant. The Bills have to find economic ways to be really good at certain positions because the way that this roster is trending and the amount of money that's coming for you know Josh Allen, it's going to strap this roster. So being able to have really good impact, high-impact players at premium positions at a low cost is very, very significant. I do think that the Bills are going to keep six defensive ends. I think Jerry Hughes, Mario Addison, Boogie Basham, Greg Rousseau, A.J. Epinesa, and F.A. Obata all make the team, and then four defensive tackles. So that's how I see it going, and I think we should all be really excited about what this pass rush is going to be capable of this year, and the Bills got finishers. They didn't have a hard time getting pressure last year. They had a hard time finishing. And in Basham and and in Rousseau, they got guys with long arms and are very, very consistent when it comes to getting on the same level as the ball carrier or the quarterback and tackling. That's the best thing about both of those two players is that they are finishers, and we saw that in 2019 from Rousseau and over the last two seasons from Basham at Wake Forest. Next one today comes from David who says, what do you make of the fall of Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa into the late second round and Nasser Dean into the sixth? These are long falls from what almost all draft pundits and fans predicted. Is maybe the big nickel more of a figment of imagination of pundits and fans? And in reality, is it not something that is much interest to NFL GMs? Well, I think Brandon Bean certainly addressed the big nickel thing in his uh pre-draft press conference and talked about that being a unicorn type thing and that they don't have a a position on their depth chart that's called big nickel. He said they're either linebackers or safeties. But almost every time a player falls that we expect to go high, it's because there's other things there. 
And for both Owusu-Koromoa and Nasser Dean, they have medical flags. Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa had some type of heart thing pop up in his combine check. And Nasser Dean, you know, he tore his ACL late in 2019 and didn't make it back until the last two games of 2020 and then got injured again at the Senior Bowl. So for both of those guys, they're good football players, but the injury stuff pushed them down the board. And almost every time a player falls and you can't explain it and you don't really know why, you're, you can be assured that some information is going to come out about injuries. And lo and behold, it did for both Hamsa and Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa. The last one today comes from Tyler, who says, knowing where we stand going into next offseason with the salary cap and players that are going to need extensions, Allen in particular, is this the perfect time to start trading out of the first round, especially with a high-paid quarterback? I'm always for trading back. I'd rather have three or four day two picks than a first rounder. Gives the chance to get more quality players for very reasonable money. Yeah, I think it's a fair thing to bring up, Tyler. And um, I don't think you trade away from certain players. Like if you're picking 28, 29, 30, 31, 32 in that range, you probably have your first round grades and you don't trade away from them. If you believe a guy's worth a first round pick, you stay there and pick them. But yeah, I do think you start opening your eye to those opportunities to move out of the first round and gain more, you know, top 100 picks to fill out your roster and have more opportunities for cheap labor at meaningful positions for your football team. And so I, I do think that is a an idea and philosophy that Brandon Bean should start to embrace. And um, obviously the caveat being that, look, if there's a first-round grade available, you don't trade away from him. You sit there and pick him. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us today. Tomorrow's podcast, we are going to react to the Buffalo Bills 2021 schedule. It's being released at 8 o'clock on Wednesday night, and so I'm going to wait until after uh, it's released to do a podcast for you uh, that will be in your feeds on Thursday so you can hear all of my analysis on the Bills schedule for the 2021 season. Friday, I'm going to have a guest and we're going to kind of put a ribbon on our draft discussion by getting another perspective in here on the Bills 2021 NFL Draft Hall. And I'm going to I'm going to send him some of the hard questions that you guys have been asking me about the draft so you can get another opinion here on the podcast. So don't miss it. Make sure you're subscribed, rate, review and share the podcast, and I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.